Area 10 Faith Community meets in the historic Bird Theater in Carytown in Richmond, Virginia. As of August 2nd, we have resumed in-person worship services on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are committed to the health and safety of our families and will continue to offer our simultaneous live stream at youtube.com slash area 10 faith community. We hope you'll join us at the Bird Theater again soon, but in the meantime, we're providing the best possible online experience we can for you. Now, on to this week's message. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown." The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Last March, as the rest of the world was starting to shut down, my husband and I were handed a new opportunity. Uh, We actually purchased our first home. It's a little bungalow just south of the James River. Yeah, I love it so much. It's so cute. Um, But before we could officially claim ownership, we had to go to the realtor's office to sign the papers. If you've ever been through this process before, you know how signing the papers can take a whole lot longer than you imagine. And I don't completely understand everything that I signed away that day. It might actually explain some of the magazine subscriptions I've been getting recently. I don't know. Um, But in return for signing my name hundreds of times across multiple pages, multiple times on each page, they handed us two small sets of keys. And that was all we got. That was it. I was kind of surprised uh, that in exchange for signing away our names to who knows what and handing over a large sum of money, we were handed two keys. Um, But those keys gave us access to our first home. After being married, we had shared apartments before, uh, but this was different. This was a place for us to care for, to invest in, to build a life in the midst of. And those little keys gave us access to all of that with a level of ownership that we had never experienced before. So keys represent ownership. Another story, my husband Zach is a high school biology teacher and he loves his summers off. Any teachers in the room? Yeah. (laughs) And in order to kind of uh, show this to me, he held up his set of keys next to mine over the course of the summer, and from his dangled two keys, one for the car, one for the house. And mine has closer to around a dozen, I don't know. Um, And he said, this is the perfect picture of our current levels of responsibility. And it's true, because when someone hands us the key, they are entrusting us with something that's valuable, that we are now partially responsible for. It symbolizes their faith in us to be good stewards of whatever that key unlocks, whether it be an apartment or a diary or a locker. Uh, When we give someone a key to our home, this 
trust extends not just to the physical space, but to everything that's contained within, whether that be electronics or money or even pets or children. So keys also represent responsibility. Third story, and this is just a little bit of a history lesson. I don't know if any of you have ever dived into the development and technology surrounding keys in the ancient world, but I did. And so we're going to learn uh, <laughs> that keys and locks were actually pretty high-end technology at the time that the Old Testament was being written. The first recorded uh, example, or the first example we have of them appeared about 6,000 years ago in ancient Babylon and Egypt. Um, interestingly, both of those were those nations were previous rulers of the Israelite nation. And actually one of the best physical specimens that we have of this like wooden key and lock system is from the ancient city of Nineveh, which you might remember from the book of Jonah. So at the time that Jesus came along and that the New Testament was being written, keys were actually going through a second wave of development. The ancient Romans were the ones that developed the metallic lock and key system. By using iron and bronze, they were able to create much stronger and smaller locks that could actually be carried around on a person. So it actually came into fashion that you were a person of wealth, that you would carry um, your keys as rings on your fingers. So it acted as a status symbol and also an added security precaution. Um, but the most common type of key would have been a skeleton key. These are the kind of vintage-style keys that you see with a simple cylindrical shaft that has a thin rectangular tooth or bit at the end. And not everybody in this time period would have had access to something like this. So at that time, keys were also a symbol of power and authority. So keys represent authority. So, when the author of this letter to the church in Philadelphia says, And to the angel of the church of Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and shuts and no one opens. He understands the weight of the meaning behind a key is that it represents ownership, responsibility, and authority. But what does it mean to have the key of David? Um, there's actually a direct correlation to this phrase earlier in the Old Testament. Um, a, a prophecy of the coming Messiah was written about 700 years before this in the book of Isaiah. It says, The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder, so he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one will open. So this parallel is not a coincidence. It sounds basically the exact same. John knew the scripture that he was referencing, and he knew that his listeners would understand it too. For his listeners, the name David conjures images of not just success, but also of holiness. David was a man after God's own heart. It was said that while man looked at the outward appearance, God looked at the heart, and God specifically chose David to be the next king of Israel. So he went from being a lowly shepherd boy to slaying the giant Goliath to being the leader of armies and eventually establishing the kingdom of God as a powerful force. King David created a flourishing society that generations of Israelites for the rest of time would look back on as the good old days. He is a symbol to the Israelites of the fulfillment of God's promise to bring them wealth, prosperity, and power. And not only that, he accomplished all of this not by obeying the rules and law of men, but by following after God. He is a foreshadowing of Jesus. He ruled with authority and had a deep love for God. He acted as a savior for the Israelites who felt like they didn't have a place in the world. And King David was not a perfect man. 
Not by any means. If you look further into his story, you will see that King David failed, and he failed hard. But that is why he is an image of, or a shadow of what is to come and to be fulfilled in Jesus. And now Jesus is claiming the key of David. He is claiming the ownership and responsibility and authority for shepherding God's people, and he will do it perfectly. So, the first thing that I think the author is trying to tell us here is that Jesus is the key, and he is the key to their salvation and our salvation. Unlike anyone else in all of history, Jesus is given unfettered access to God. There are no closed doors between God the Father and his Son, Jesus. And this is because God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit are the Trinity, and so they are perfectly in line, um, in mind, and purpose. And God trusts Jesus to perform the ultimate task, to come to earth for the purpose of teaching, suffering, dying on the cross, and eventually being raised again. And it is through this ultimate sacrificial act that we find salvation. Jesus trades a perfect life, one without sin, his own, for ours. And we surrender our sin and selfishness to him. When that happens, that sin can be nailed to the cross with him. But first we have to say, I screwed up. Jesus, I don't know how to do this on my own. I need you. And in that moment, Jesus can take the weight of every sin that we ever committed or ever will commit, and it will die on the cross with him. It is this cosmic trade that allows us to stand before God blameless. And by that act of grace, Jesus Christ is the key to our salvation. But then he gets into this language about opening things that no one can shut and shutting things that no one can open. What is that about? Uh, At this point, this church has already experienced some level of persecution, right? They have probably had some doors actually slammed in their faces. And while the Philadelphian church has not undergone the same type of persecution that other churches that we've already seen letters written to may have experienced, they know what's coming down the road for them. They know that any day a Roman authority could come and knock on their door, or knock down their door, and drag them into the street to publicly persecute them for not obeying Caesar is Lord. So when Jesus tells them that there's some doors that he can open for them, and other doors that he can make sure will stay shut, that is a meaningful promise. He is assuring them that no matter what life throws their way, that they're on the winning team. That they might feel like they're losing the battle, but they are winning the war. That Jesus is in control of which doors open and which doors closed. So Jesus opens the door. And I say he opens the door of opportunity. Um, He says, I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. Very repetitive. I know that you have but little power, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So this door that he's talking about, we see in other examples in the New Testament, they talk about open doors a lot. Usually it means an opportunity for the gospel message to be shared. Um, Paul talks this way to the churches in Corinth and Colossae, and he asks these churches to pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. So what he likely means here 
is that Jesus has authority and power over the world, and if they continue to be faithful, not deny his name, share the gospel, then doors of evangelism will be open to them, and they'll have the unexpected opportunity to share Christ to the people around them, despite their current circumstances. And I love this because I really think it does frame what comes next, because this is going to sound kind of harsh, okay? Um, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So churches in this time period were actually facing opposition from multiple sides. Um, Some churches were facing opposition mostly from the Roman government, but for others there was a lot more trouble that was kind of being stirred up in the Jewish synagogues. And it sounds harsh for Jesus to call these Jews of this um, synagogue that they've encountered um, a synagogue of Satan, but the way that he described them is really important. We need to notice that John is not talking about all Jews here. He is specifically talking about a group of people who call themselves Jews, but they aren't. We've already said that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart, and God knows what's really going on inside of these men that they call themselves Jewish. Maybe it's to gain notoriety in their local community or some political sway or religious respect, but regardless, they're Jewish in name only. The same thing can be true of us if we call ourselves Christians, but we never actually let the teachings of Jesus transform our heart or change our lives in any way. God sees their heart and knows that they're just pretending, and he has some very strong words for those people, calling them a synagogue of Satan. So basically, Jesus is telling them that this local synagogue is giving them a lot of grief right now, but it won't be long until the power and authority in this situation is reversed. They're actually going to come to realize that God loves the church, and the persecutors will come to see it their way. The picture of them coming to bow down at their feet is not an image of subjugation, but of people coming to offer respect. It's a sign that other faiths are now coming to understand that Christians have got it right and are in God's favor. But Jesus also shuts the door to those who deny him. This statement is final and absolute, and it's a reality that John is pointing us to of what's to come later in the book of Revelation, which is the judgment day where regardless of your background or religion, the hearts of intent and intentions of men will be laid before God and the final call will be made. Were you for me or were you against me? If you were for me, great, come on in. But if you were against me, then you are in line with Satan himself, regardless of how spiritual or religious you think you are. That is a difficult message for people to hear, for anyone to hear who thinks that they are doing things that please God. But that is not the fate for the church of Philadelphia. He continues, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So it is their patient endurance that preserves them from that judgment. And this word endurance I find really fascinating. The original Greek is hypomone. So you might know the words hypo and hyper as meaning like above or below. Um, Like if you're hypoglycemic, then you don't have, you're under the normal threshold for how much sugar you have in your body. Um, And then meneo means to stay. So the word literally means to stay under or to bear up under. This is actually the exact image that we get of Jesus carrying the cross. 
that he hypomoned the cross, it says in Hebrews 12. He bore its weight and he continued to move forward. And most of us probably don't seek to abide under suffering and we want to run away and avoid it at all costs. But we know that this hypomoning is how the early Christians approached their suffering. They bore up under it. The Romans actually wrote down in their own history books how amazed they were to see Christians get up in front of the highest authorities in the land and say, we will not bow to Caesar because our Lord is King of kings and Lord of lords. And when they were told that their insolence would lead to their deaths, they said, thanks be to God. The Romans were amazed at their calmness and lack of bitterness. So each year, around mid-November, the world kind of anticipates the release of the Starbucks Holiday Cup. And every year, they inevitably release some kind of innocuous design that has snowflakes or snowmen or, God forbid, just a plain red cup. The world goes crazy. Um, But at that point in the year, I always know that my Facebook feed is going to fill up with Christians and and loved ones, people that I know who are furious that Starbucks is taking the Christ out of Christmas. If you lay that in contrast to these early Christians who had no bitterness, they were calm, they're silently staring down their own deaths. I don't know about you, but my heart drops to the pit of my stomach when I lay those two images side by side. That is not patient endurance. And the world does not respect or admire Christian entitlement. So while this church is told that they'll be spared from ultimate judgment, you should notice that he does not at all gloss over the patient endurance and the suffering they will endure to get there. Not every door is going to be open to them. Quite the opposite. I bet if I asked you um, to think of a door that was closed to you recently, it wouldn't take you very long to come up with one. You might have put an offer on a house, but you got outbid. You might have hoped that this relationship was going to last, but it fizzled out like the rest. Or maybe there was a loved one that you wanted to say goodbye to, but they passed away too quickly. We are constantly faced with closed doors. And when we allow ourselves to process and feel all that comes with that, that is a form of suffering. But being a follower of Christ in no way means that you're excluded from the painful parts of life. I'm sorry to say. Uh, We still experience the hardship, the trauma, the unfairness of living in a fallen and broken world. But being a Christ follower gives us something that is hard to replicate anywhere else. And that is hope. Jesus, in preparing his disciples for his own death, tells them, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And over the past month, we have seen long-standing governments fall. We have seen hurricanes and earthquakes tear communities apart. We have seen children die in household fires right here in Richmond. And I I don't know what you're going through right now, but in a room this size, I think it's safe to say that someone in this space has just gone through a miscarriage. Or maybe their spouse told them that they don't love them anymore and they want to call it quits. In this world, we are going to have trouble. We are going to have more trouble than we know how to bear. But 
take heart. Jesus Christ is the key, and he is overcoming this world. Even uh, the Greek philosophers had a phrase, and I love this. It's pathemata, mathemata. It means suffering is education. Isn't that fun? <laughs> it's like my little emo dashboard confessional loving heart is just a flutter right now. It's like I want to get it tattooed on my arms like pathemata, mathemata, suffering is education. It's brutal, right? It's awesome. Um, but there's so much hope that's in there as well. It means that our suffering is not in vain. It means that if we allow it to, suffering can transform us into stronger, more humble, more loving, more wise, more compassionate people. Tim Keller says it this way, the fact is suffering will either make you a much better or much worse person than you were before, but it will not leave you where you were. It will either push you into a far greater humanity or a far greater hardness far greater wholeness or far greater brokenness. It won't leave you where you were. You see, in order to be useful for anything, a key has to be forged in a fire or cut by a blade. A key without any marks or ridges who has never felt the sting of being reshaped into something new simply exists. It doesn't open any doors. It's without purpose. What would it look like if we chose to say in the face of those closed doors, thanks be to God? What if when what you had hoped for comes crashing down around you, that you would stop and breathe and say, thanks be to God, because God knows how this is for my good. And maybe you're in a space where you can't see the silver lining right now. Maybe it's just the simple, terrible pain of living in a broken world with fallen people. And it just feels like there's no possible upside. Even then, even then we have hope. Because suffering makes us more like Christ. 1 Peter 4, 12 through 13 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. These words from Peter are tender. He starts it with beloved, and that shows me that he's not reprimanding his audience. He is tenderly, softly reminding them, I know this hurts. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. We have a Savior who is not high and lofty and unattainable. He has experienced the same pain, even more pain than we can imagine. He continues this, with this promise. Uh, he says in 3.11, I am coming soon. And we're going to stop there. I know there's more to that verse, but we need to stop because that's problematic. Our perception of time is different than God's. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause and effect, but actuality from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. Somebody gets it, good. Right. <laughs> time is just different from the heavenly perspective. And God tells Abraham that he's going to have a child, but he waits 10 years to deliver on that promise. And when God's people are in exile, he says, you're going to go back to the promised land, but it's going to be 70 years. That's seven zero. 
most of the people who hear that promise are not even going to be alive anymore. So when Jesus sends a message to the church that he was coming soon, we might assume, based on our understanding of time, that he lied to them. Because he didn't come back, not in their lifetime, not in generations after. We're still waiting on Jesus to return now. But Jesus knows all of this suffering is temporary. And while we still await the second coming of Jesus, these Christians have already gone. They've gone home to be with their Savior. Jesus was faithful to them for the duration of their lives, and when their days on earth ended, a speck of time in light of of eternity, they were welcomed into his loving arms. And so he tells them, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Oh, hold fast. Okay, this is a great phrase too. Um, We get the phrase from the Dutch word, houd vast, which translates to hold tight. And it's in regards to uh, holding securely to ships, ropes, or rigging. So when ships are preparing for a storm, they will cry this out, and the, the crew will make sure that all of the ropes are tied tightly enough to withstand the storm. This is kind of an iconic phrase in the sailing community and um, became kind of a mantra for men at sea, so much so that sailors would have this phrase tattooed onto their knuckles. It reminds them to stay true in the face of fear. So if you're not in, you know, on board for my Pathamata Mathamata group tattoo idea, here's another idea. <laughs> this is a good one. Um, but it's important to remember that holding fast isn't about how strong you are. Holding fast is about how strong the foundation is that you're tying yourself to. Holding fast is about making sure you're anchored into something that is sturdy and can withstand the trials and tribulations of life. And on our own, we don't have that kind of strength. But when we hold fast to the truth of Scripture, we have an anchor holding us in place and giving us a steady footing to survive the storms of life. You can imagine that you're rock climbing. Um, not when you go to a gym and you've got those kind of colorful handholds that are drilled into the wall, but free climbing up the face of a rock. You're going to come across a lot of different natural formations in the rock, and some of those handholds are going to be good, and some are going to be bad. And it's not a matter how much you trust the handhold, but is that trust, is it trustworthy? Jesus is saying, I am trustworthy. You can put all of the weight of your doubts on me. I can take it. So when Jesus tells them to hold fast to what they have, which is their hope in him, that no one may seize their crown, he's talking about uh, marathon races that were very common in that day. Uh, Men would uh, have to have um, strong discipline, abide by strict rules, and successfully win the race in order to receive a crown of olive branches. You've probably seen pictures of that. And so he's encouraging them, again, to stay strong, to keep pressing forward so that they can receive the prize that they have earned. And one of the best ways that we can practically hold fast I think, in in the world that we're in, is to be in community with other Christians who help grow our faith stronger. This is going to be a quick plug because it is small group season at Area 10, and um, we've got a lot of great small groups that are coming up, regardless of where you are in your faith. um, We've got groups that 
are for people who are new to faith and want to understand how Christianity really works. It's a, a great place to ask questions. It's called Starting Point. Um, we've got other groups that will be talking about the current sermon series and talking about how to practically apply those lessons into your everyday life. And then we've got other groups that will talk about specific topics like how to handle your finances or how to read your Bible or read a book together like C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. Any one of these is a great way to make sure that your ropes are tethered to something firm. Um, you can explore and sign up for any of these groups now at areatonchurch.com slash smallgroups or in the Areaton app. Okay, over. <laughs> Let's go back to the text. Revelation 3.12 says, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. This section is a promise of the stability and security that is awaiting Christians to live out their life in faithfulness to God. We have evidence of churches in this region that the names of priests who served in those churches would be carved into the stone pillars that supported the structure. More than a physical marker in this world, it's a symbolic image of the saints within the church who stood in the gap, holding up the church and the name of Jesus for the whole world to see. And he will write on them the new Jerusalem, which means city of peace. The new Jerusalem, as we see later in Revelation, is the city of God, eternal and enthroned, something we also called heaven. So those who are faithful, who hold fast, who finish the race, will be emblazoned with the name of Christ here on earth and in heaven, and no longer will they suffer. Revelation 21, 1 through 4 says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Earlier I told you that there were no closed doors between God the Father and his son Jesus. And I have to admit I kind of lied. There was one door that was firmly shut. His entire ministry was an open door. When he performed miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit and taught about scriptures, it was a, a path to show people the road to salvation. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that Jesus was betrayed before he was surrendered to the authorities to be hung on the cross, Jesus prayed. And he asked that this cup would be passed from him. He didn't want to die. He knocked and he banged on that door all night long. He begged for it to be open. And when it was clear that it, was, it wouldn't budge, he said, not my will, but yours be done. And the truth is, God is going to close doors on you. 
You aren't going to understand in that moment why, and that's going to hurt. There's also going to be doors that God is going to open to you, and that's going to bring joy. And when we place our trust in the one who opens doors that no one can shut and shuts doors that no one can open, we understand that Jesus is key. And we cannot begin to understand this life and what it means without him. So I want to give you a little gift as we leave. We're about to enter into a time of communion where we're going to remember the sacrifice that Jesus made by eating a small bit of juice, which represents his blood, and a wafer, which represents his, his body. And if you're watching us online, you can gather um, some, some juice and some cracker to represent the same. But as we take communion here in the bird, you can go out the left side of your aisles and down to the communion tables we have at the front and then cross over to get back to your seat. Um, but also on that table is going to be a, smile, a, a pile of small skeleton keys. Even if you aren't going to participate in communion this morning, I would still love for you to come forward and grab yourself a key. As you take this key, I want you to remember this letter to the Philadelphians and all that Jesus had to say to them. And to those that have surrendered their hearts to him, that he claims ownership He claims responsibility, and he claims authority over your life. This morning, you can make a decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life. And we do this at Area 10 through the act of baptism, because in the book of Acts, when um, a crowd asks how to be saved, Peter responds, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just last week, we had a young man named Isaac who made this decision for himself. He gave his life to Jesus, and we baptized him over at 2810 after the worship service. This morning, another young lady has made that same decision, and after the worship service today, we're going to head back over to 2810 and do it again. And if you have never made that decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, the water is warm. We've got fresh towels. We can baptize you here today. If you're joining us online and maybe you're not quite ready to make that decision, um, you can fill out in the card that you received as you came in or at area10church.com connect. There's a little checkbox that says baptism. And one of our elders will reach out to you this week to have a conversation with you about what that might look like. But if you're here in the room and you're ready, After the service, I would love to invite you to come forward to talk to me or one of our elders or a member of the prayer team and talk about how we can take the next step. Regardless of where you are in your journey, it is essential to remember that Jesus is the key to our salvation. You cannot earn it through good works. You cannot find it in any other source. So I want you to take that key and put it somewhere where you're going to see it often. Where you're going to feel the weight of it. And that you'll be reminded that Jesus claims ownership, responsibility, and authority over your life. You can give that to him. And you'll encounter people who don't understand why you give that authority to him. But soon, hopefully before the judgment day, they will come to see God's blessing over you and love for you. And they'll repent. In the meantime, hold on. Jesus is coming soon, one way or another. 
wait for his return with patient endurance, holding fast to the hope that you have in Christ Jesus, that you will receive your reward. He finishes every letter with this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the Spirit is still talking in this church right now. I just pray that all of us would have the ears to listen. The band is going to lead us in a time of communion as we remember Christ's sacrifice. Thanks be to God. Slow down, take time, breathe in, he said, he'd reveal what's to come. The thoughts in his mind, always higher than mine, and he'd reveal all to come. So take courage, my heart. Stay steadfast, my soul. He's in the waiting. He's in the waiting. And hold on to your hope as your triumph unfolds. He's never failing. He's never failing. Surely keep your promise. 
promise to me and I will rise in your victory. Sing that again. And you 